moment when Jesus came into the city and the people began to throw down the palm branches in front of him and hail him as king. So we want to take a look at this passage and then talk about some of the ramifications of some of the expectations that were put on Jesus. But let's go ahead and read the passage first. John chapter 12, beginning of verse 12, says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when He had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things uh, were written about Him and that they had done these things to Him. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of calling and expectation. I think anybody who has ever had a sense of calling or a sense of destiny upon their lives have run into this conflict between calling and expectation. Their own expectations of what that calling will involve as well as the expectations of loved ones, the expectations of people that may be kind of observing from the outside. I know in my own life, as a young man, I sensed the call of God upon my life. I knew that I was called to preach around the age of 18. Actually, on my 18th birthday, I surrendered publicly to the call of God to preach. And that was my second time I'd ever had the opportunity to minister the Word of God. But really, from a young child, I had a sense of destiny upon my life. I had a sense of calling upon my life. And uh, there were certain expectations that go along with that. I remember even when I was in Bible school, my dad would call and kind of coach me along at times to let me know how badly our particular denomination needed good preachers in the area and that he was just sure that God was going to call me back home and I was going to pastor one of the local churches in that area. And I knew that there were definitely different expectations that I felt God had on my life and that I certainly had on my life. And But how do you break it to your dad? That's not really what I'm called to do, you know. So I had to kind of let him down uh, slowly. But then, you know, as you go through life, even as a pastor of various churches, you realize that people have certain expectations of what they think things should look like, the way that things should go. And oftentimes, those expectations are very well intended. I think about, for example, uh, you know, maybe a child goes off to college and he has a sense of calling on his life, maybe not necessarily to ministry, but maybe a calling to business or maybe whatever the case might be. And, you know, parents get very, very concerned. Number one, they want their children to be able to enjoy all the reward, but they don't want them to have to face the risk, right? So there are certain expectations they have. They want them to go the safe and reliable way. That's why oftentimes sons are encouraged just to go into the family business. You know, it's, it's already established. It's the safe route. But sometimes the calling on our heart, you know, provokes us to go in directions that are going to be a little bit risky from the natural standpoint. But I was just listening to an interview the other day and I'm not real familiar with the uh, te television show The Office myself. I know it's a very popular television show. I think it's already ran its uh, distance and kind of has now in syndication or whatever. But I was listening to the actor John Krasinski, who has gone on since to have a career in uh, TV and movies and different things like that. In fact, he married his wife, Emily Blunt, who's actually a more famous actor than he is. But nevertheless, he was talking about when he first went to Hollywood. Uh, he told his mom, he said, I think I'm going to try this acting thing out. She said, that's great, son. Go ahead and do it. But just promise me this. You're going to give yourself about a two-year window. And if you're not successful within that time frame, you know, let's, let's find something a little bit more you know, reasonable to do, that kind of thing. And so sure enough, he had come to the end of that period. And of course, you know, I don't know much about the acting profession, but you hear the same thing. You know, you're a waiter, or I think Brad Pitt had to dress up in a chicken suit and sell chicken wings. You know what I mean? All these things that these famous people had to do to make it. And he was at the end of that two-year period, and his about to the point where he had faced enough rejection, he was ready to come home. And so he called his mom, and he said, you know what, Mom, I, I just feel like 
it's time for me maybe to, you know, kind of put these dreams to bed. And she said, why don't you stay just a little bit longer? And it was the following week that he got the office. And so if he had bailed on his dreams and not taken the risk, he would not have received the reward, right? And so sometimes it's an issue of risk and reward. Other times the expectations come because maybe, maybe a parent or others want to realize their dream through their children. And we've seen those kind of tragic situations where the pressure is applied to the child to maybe go in a direction of life and calling that they don't feel is genuine or authentic to who they are or what they're called to do or be. And so oftentimes you'll see these disappointed expectations. People think, you know, you should be doing one thing when really, you know, maybe you feel called to do something else. And I've often thought when it comes to Jesus, how much pressure was upon him. In fact, I'd be interested when we go to heaven to talk to the Lord Jesus Christ a little bit about the calling upon his life. Because, you know, he was all God, but he was also a man. And I wonder if when he became into the realization of what he was called to do, uh, you know, if that began to be a little bit altered or if maybe even he had some surprise uh, realizations of that call upon his life, then maybe it didn't necessarily always go in the direction that he thought it would. I would imagine that as a young preacher going to his own hometown of Nazareth, you know, you want to be accepted. You want the crowds to love you. This is your home crew. This is your family. How did that end? Well, they were going to push him off the brow of a cliff. Now, I've had some rough... I've had some rough times in churches, but I've never had anybody yet want to throw me off the brow of a cliff. And I don't know if that's what Jesus expected going into that day, but oftentimes we have these disappointed expectations. The difference between calling and expectation can be dramatic. And we know that when it comes to Jesus, there were a lot of erroneous expectations concerning what, what He was going to do and how He was going to fulfill the role of Messiah and King. On this day, of course, they hailed Him as King. This is really what this was. The triumphal entry was them recognizing this is the king of Israel. That's why I actually chose this passage because it identifies that they were recognizing him or at least hailing him as king of Israel. In other words, this is the long-awaited you know, messianic fulfillment. Jesus is coming into town. This is the prophet. This is the one our eyes are upon. And of course, we know that within a very short time, this same crowd that's saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, like we sang this morning, was saying, crucify him, crucify him. Reminds me of a joke that we heard in Bible school. Uh, the three years of a pastor, you know, progressively losing favor with his flock. The first year he comes, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By year number two, they're saying, by what authority doest thou these things? And by year three, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Well, thankfully, that's never been my experience. But you know, Again, what's the idea here? Disappointed expectations. Thinking things are going to go one way when they go a different way. We know the Jews had some pretty heavy expectations on what the Messiah was going to do. To them, he was going to be more like David, a warrior king, who was going to put down the opposition, no doubt put down the iron fist of Rome, and liberate them and put them once more back on the top of the hill, restore their glory days as they had in the days of David and Solomon. That was pretty much, we think, the expectation. Of course, there were zealots that wanted Rome destroyed, and of course, they had their expectations. All these different factions that were present in the life of Jesus in that day that had their different expectations of what a Messiah should be. Of course, the Pharisees thought, thought he should be a scholar that came from their ranks, right? And so there was all these disappointed expectations. Jesus not meeting the mold. And I, let me just tell you, 
If you ever do anything daring for God, there's going to be people who have a great idea of what that should look like. I, I love what Rick Warren said. He said, God loves you and everyone else has a wonderful plan for your life. So you just have to determine, I'm going to follow the call of God. If it meets people's expectations, wonderful, but it's probably not. There's probably going to be directions you go, things you do in fulfilling the call of God that are not going to be what others anticipated. You know, the disciples themselves had some real expectations of what that was going to look like. After all, you know, these guys, they had hooked their wagon to a star. And they were intending to ride this thing to glory themselves. And of course, they had certain expectations that Jesus was going to have to let them know that things were not going to go exactly the way that they had envisioned. In fact, go with me if you will. I want to look at a couple of passages here. One is in Matthew chapter 16. And we know that around, particularly the last week of Jesus' life, surrounding these same events, there was a lot of bickering going on in Jesus' home crew. You know, his posse was arguing among themselves. Who's going to be the first? Who's going to be the greatest? Because Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. I mean, it seems like everything's coming to a culmination. Certainly, he's going to announce himself as king of Israel. And, you know, these boys want to make sure that they're on the right and left side of the Lord. So there are several discussions that take place along this line. And one of them is here in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And I just want to begin with... Um, well, let's just go ahead and look at verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Right here, you can see what some of the expectations of the people are. Well, this is who He is, or this is who I think He is. So Jesus goes on to say, and here's the crucial point for all of us, But who do you say that I am? Verse 15. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, so far, you know, gold star, Peter, you got the answer right. You got the $64,000 answer to the $64,000 question. But then I want you to notice just a few verses later, beginning with verse 21, a different dialogue that takes place. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Again, what is this? Disappointed expectation. Peter's got his idea. After all, he's kind of planning on being the Lord's right-hand man, right? I'm going to be on his right-hand side, and now the Lord's talking about this awful demise. Don't know what that resurrection business is, but this idea of going to Jerusalem and being crucified, that just does not sound like it's matching my expectations. But notice what Jesus says, verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, what? Satan, you are not, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I believe that almost any time we have disappointed expectations, it's because we've allowed our priorities or the priorities of other people to supersede the priorities of God. Rather than trying to match the expectations that go with the calling, we're trying to match the expectations other people have of that calling. And Jesus was having none of it. And Jesus was saying, get behind me. Saying why? Because he said, you're trying to have me reap the reward without enduring the sacrifice. And how many of you know, anytime you do anything for God, there's going to be reward if you're faithful, but there's going to be some sacrifice. There's going to be some things you're going to have to do that the flesh is not going to want to do. And Jesus lets him know, by the way, hey, this isn't just me. 
uh, that's got to bear my cross. If you're going to follow me and be my disciple, there's going to be some things in the, in the flesh you're going to have to suffer too. There's going to be some dreams you're going to have to lay down. There's going to have to be a crucifixion of your own agenda to forward the agenda of God in your own life. And I can tell you from personal experience that if you're going to obey God, there's going to have to be some things you'll forego. Can I just tell you that as a native of Taft in my young years, it was never my intention to go back. Uh, I remember I left New England. I was in, you know, I was in paradise. I was in Vermont. Beautiful foliage in the fall. I mean, all the things you hear about New England are true. But the one thing, by the way, they don't put in the brochure is the six-month winter. They don't put that in there. But everything else is true. I mean, everything looks like a postcard everywhere you look, particularly in the fall. It's beautiful. And then I remember I'm coming back to California and I'm going through Barstow. In fact, I didn't know where Purgatory was until I went through Barstow. And I found it. It's right there. And I'm coming back to Tap. I'm joking. I'm coming back to Taft and I'm thinking, what in the world am I coming back here for? Not knowing that, of course, that's where Marie and I would reconnect. And, you know, God had another chapter of life that was completely unforeseen by me. What I'm talking about, calling in expectations. Friend, I'm telling you, God has great things for your life, but there's going to be some expectations that you're going to experience in life. Some expectations are going to be disappointed. Some expectations are not realistic. They're, they don't go with the call of God. And you've always got to be willing to forego your expectations or even the expectations that others have on your life so that you can stay true to the call of God. One other place uh, similar to this I want to look. Same book, Matthew chapter 20. It's very obvious as you read the accounts around this time frame. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Can you imagine knowing that you're going to be facing something like the cross and you still have to deal with, you know, in-staff bickering about who's going to be first. And, you know, here's Jesus facing the most, you know, uh, absolutely crucial moment of his life and ministry, right? Where he's going to have to sacrifice and become, you know, sin sacrifice on our behalf. And yet, these guys are still paranoid about, you know, who's going to be number one among them. But notice this in Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. It says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day He will rise again. Now let me just ask you, what about that is hard to understand? <laughs> I mean, this is pretty clear, right? This is where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem, and the things that you thought, and most of the Jews as well, those are going to be saying, Hosanna, blessed are you, comes in the name of the Lord. All of that is going to look like that. It's going to look good, but it's going to end poorly. Let me just, you know, it's going to end good eventually. But your expectations are going to be disappointed. In fact, he tells them later, as you well know, many of you are going to betray me and deny me. And in fact, they all forsook him and fled when it came to the garden, right? But it's funny how, not funny, not really funny, but funny, how despite all of that, you still have this pervasive, ongoing denial of reality in the light of the expectations they want to see fulfilled. Notice what it says in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? And they said, We are able. Of course, I don't know what he's talking about. But yeah, sure, we can do that. 
So he just said to them, Indeed, you will drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now again, why were they displeased? Because they didn't think to bring their own moms. <laughs> it wasn't because they thought, how dare they, you know, worry Jesus about this when he just told us that he's going to be crucified. No, they were just mad that they had a mom who had some influence, right? I mean, this is a mom who got them into the prep schools and everything else. And so they're pulling out the big guns. Mom's going to lobby Jesus for position on the right and left. And of course, they're upset about this. And Jesus said, okay, I get it. we need to have a staff meeting. <laughs> so he pulls them together. Notice what it says in verse uh, 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you know that there was also a moment where Jesus, what does he do? He, he, he sits the boys down. He takes off his outer garments, puts a towel around his own waist. And what does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. And of course, he's doing this as a living illustration of the very principles that he's trying to express. How many of you know that no one who's looking for towels ever fell from a lofty position? You know what I'm talking about as far as being, you know, set up in their minds and their ego and so forth and so on. If you're looking for towels, you're safe from a fall. <laughs> now, why am I talking about this? We just had in the news, very public, another major high-profile high ministry that, that had another moral failure. And I mean, this one was enormous, probably one of the most... Uh, well-known ministries on the planet. One of the leaders there had a moral failure, and now it's just, it's ugly. It's being fought out on Facebook uh, for all the world to see. And I'm looking at this kind of stuff, and this is not something that's new. Of course, this is stuff that takes place all the time. Another casualty of the celebrity preacher syndrome. And I think part of this is due in fault because we've allowed those that are called to serve to take a stairway up to prominence and significance rather than stepping down like Jesus did to a point of service. Again, nobody looking for towels is falling from a lofty place, right? If you're humbling yourself, your feet are already well planted and on the ground. And I think this is what is missing in much of our concept and understanding about service, that we're not to exalt ourselves. It's very easy when you come to a place of prominence to be surrounded by people who want to tell you what you want to hear. I think what's buried a lot of preachers early were the yes men that surrounded them. I've always said you've got to have someone in your life who can tell you no. You've got to have someone in your life who can tell you you're wrong. And if you've got to a place of influence where people are afraid any longer to challenge your assumptions, you're in a very dangerous place. You want to have friends that are love you enough to tell you the truth despite of the position that you find yourself in. And Jesus, of course, had to be the reality check on each and every one of these disciples who had this idea that being a part of the kingdom meant exalting oneself. And Jesus said, no, in fact, in the kingdom, if you want to go up, you've got to go down. If you want to lead, you've got to serve. And really, that's what we have in the kingdom of heaven is servant leadership. The, the one who leads is the one who simply serves the most. And sometimes you have to make difficult decisions so that you can serve you know, the larger majority of people. I, I, I shared this before, that when I pastored, uh, and still to this day, I'm kind of like this, but when I pastored, particularly in New England, I would tell my leadership, listen, I don't want to hear about any problems before i got to preach. 
you know, I don't want, you know, some person coming through my door telling about the crisis that just happened this morning and I got to fix it right now. Why? Because I got to go out and preach to a whole bunch of people. And if I'm preoccupied with that on my mind, I can't serve the larger group that I'm called to serve because I'm going to be weighed down and preoccupied with that little crisis. Better hit me that after I preached and served everybody, right? And that, that rule was not given for my comfort. It was given so that I could better serve the whole. And so sometimes when you're in positions of authority, you have to make difficult decisions so that you can do your... Th- but it's still the idea, the concept behind it is still one of serving people, not being elevated yourself, right? And like I said, when we get this backwards, and I think this is one of the dangers, you know, particularly because we're Americans and because we have the corporate world that is so closely associated with being American and capitalism, and I'm all for all that. But when we try to bring that into the church, we have corporate leaders in the pulpit, right? Rather than servant leaders. I think, it again, it becomes dangerous because they become CEOs of empires rather than servants of God's people. I think it's just something we have to be mindful of and something we have to be careful of. And I think there's a couple of things that can be a good check and balance on us. If ever we're put in a position where we have authority or we have influence, a couple of things we need to always remember. You know, even even today, influence can be found by people who are not given a position. Today, because of the Internet and, you know, leveling the ground, you might say, of, of public access, there are people that have never really held positions before or proven themselves, but now have a lot of influence. In fact, they say that some of the greatest public influencers today are people with YouTube channels and things like that. And these may be unproven people, people with no character, and yet because they have a platform, they have influence. And so there's obviously a danger there. But a couple of things that can always serve, I think, as a check and balance for any of us when it comes to serving or making sure that we keep our, our, our head about us, if you will, in these areas. And that is, number one, always remember that our primary role is to serve others. Look with me, if you will, at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. And here the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, that doesn't mean, that's not a qualitative statement saying, you're better than me, so I have to serve you. What it means is, I'm putting your interests in front of my own. And in fact, he goes on to say that, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. One of the very first lessons God gave me about his own character, and I've shared this many times before, and I'll just encapsulate it, but it's an important lesson to understand. And that is when Jesus rebuked the disciples that were following him, they were people that were following him, supposedly. And yet he told them, you're of your father, the devil, of the desires of your father you want to do. And then he goes on to say he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, for there's no truth in him. And I remember, like you've heard me say many times before, wondering, what does he mean by that? He was a murderer from the beginning. And I didn't really understand that statement until I got over to 1 John. And it talked about how Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. That's right at the beginning, right? You got Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And right at the beginning, we see that sin nature, that selfish nature at work in Cain. The same thing that caused the devil to want to promote himself above God and exalt his throne above God's throne. Here's Cain now wanting to exalt his interests above his brothers, and he kills his brothers. And the Lord showed me out of this that the sin nature always focuses on self and self-interest. 
So much so that it will promote its own interests at the expense of others, even if that expense, even even if that means murder. And that's what we see with Cain and Abel. Whereas the character of Christ is exactly the opposite. It always seeks to promote the other interests of others, even at the cost of its own interests. And the extreme expression of that, rather than to murder, is to lay down one's life for another. Which is exactly, of course, what Jesus did for us. And John goes on to say in 1 John 3, that we need to lay down our lives for one another. Not necessarily in martyrdom, but in daily service, exalting the interests of others beyond ourselves. We're all called to serve and to promote the interests of others beyond ourselves. And then secondly, I think the thing that will help us to always be mindful of our proper place and proper role is to understand our limitations. You know, the older I get, limitations are a blessing, not a curse. When I was younger, you know, you want to you be able to do it all, right? But as I've gotten older, I've appreciated limitation. Because every limitation I recognize is just one more job I don't have to do. <laughs> because if I'm not graced or anointed or called to do it, that means somebody else is. And that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, is that the body of Christ is just that. It's a body. And just as every member in our body has a function, so we as members in Christ's body have a distinct function according to the grace or the divine enablement that God has given each and every one of us. And so one of the things that has caused, again, this... I don't want to call it celebrity status, but this idea that, you know, I've got to do it all, I've got to be in charge of everything, you know, I've got that kind of thing, has been the failure to recognize our limitations. That one member does not a body make. One stone does not a temple make. We're all living stones. You know, if we just came to church and I was by myself, that'd be a boring Sunday service, right? But likewise, the body cannot fulfill its function if we only have one or two members that are doing what they're called and graced of God to do. We'll, we'll look at one more verse and close it for the day, but go with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And I love what the Apostle Paul here says, because again, it's in this idea of being mindful of reducing ourselves, not trying to see ourselves as more lofty than we ought, like the disciples were trying to do. Even Jesus Himself, think about it. If anybody had the right to exalt Himself, it was the Lord, right? He was the King of Israel. He was God made flesh. And yet, He humbled Himself to the point of not only a servant, but to the ignominious death of the crucifixion, right? You know, if you're a Roman citizen, you couldn't even be crucified. It was such a horrible you know, uh, mark, I guess you could say, against your character, that a Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified. So, Jesus bore what was the lowliest death of His day, right? The humiliation of being on that cross, naked and stripped of all His rightful dignity, just so that He could be God's sin-bearer on our behalf. And the Bible says, it pleased Jehovah to bruise Him in Isaiah 53. Why? Because in crushing Him and bruising Him, He released us, He acquitted us. Jesus paid the price for us. Think about the service and the servant spirit that was involved in Him. But yet, because He was willing to do it, now God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name. But notice this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We won't read the rest of the passage, but if you go on, he talks about, just like he does in 1 Corinthians 12, about the fact that as different members of the body, we have a different function, depending upon the grace that God has given us. So again, one member does not a body make. There's a lot of things that I just simply can't do, a lot of things I choose not to do. In fact, I was 
just talking about this about why I don't sing more like upon the platform. I used to, when I was in the traveling ministry, I, I sang a little bit, and so people would want me to kind of come and sing and preach. I was going to be a you know a traveling preacher, singer, I guess you know. And I just felt the Lord telling me, you know, you, you need to make a decision to defer to your primary gift because I didn't really feel the same grace and anointing when I sang as I did when I preached. And just because you can do a thing doesn't necessarily mean you're called to do a thing. So there was a lot of times where I would be in churches and maybe the worship leader couldn't make it like today. And so I'd come up because I could at least kind of keep in tune and stay on beat for the most part, as long as I know the song. And there had been times where I didn't know either. <laughs> and I just did it anyway just to serve, you know. And uh, But nevertheless, there were times where I filled that role, but I could tell that wasn't my primary grace. There wasn't really the same level of grace and anointing on that as when I just did what I'm called to do behind the pulpit. And I realized if I'm taking up someone else's role, then they're taking a seat when they should have a platform, right? So I think one of the things we have to be conscious of is the fact that all of us, thank God, have limitations. And we need to know those limitations and operate within the framework of those limitations. Again, calling an expectation. Nothing's more sad than to see Simon Cowell go up one side and down the other of some would-be contestant on, Amer- on, a, on American Idol because his grandma thought he had the most wonderful singing voice in the world, but he couldn't even carry a tune, right? Calling an expectation. But the fact of the matter is we have to be realistic about our limitations of what we can do and what we can't do. And what we can't shine, where we don't have that grace, what's beautiful is we can sit back and appreciate the gift of God that's on someone else. I remember, I'll close with this story, when I was in Austria years ago, uh, I was teaching at a Bible college for two and a half weeks, and we were doing noon meetings, and at night, at seven o'clock, we would do a service, and during that two and a half, three weeks that we were there, um, a guest speaker came through, so they had us kind of take a seat, and this other guy spoke. His name was Peter Pretorius, and you may have heard of him. If you've ever watched, like on Christian TV, you'll see James Robinson sometimes, he feeds the hungry in these developing nations, and Peter and Esau Pretorius helped him with that, so they're on TV quite a bit. But Peter Pretorius is an evangelist. And evangelists, man, they preach to the lost. Like Philip the evangelist, he preached Christ unto them. That's, that's their calling, right? I, I'm convinced there are some evangelists so anointed, they can preach on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and somebody would get saved. They just have that something about them. I don't know. Like Billy Graham. You know, he would just say something simple like, you're lonely, uh, you need love, uh, come to Christ, and 3,000 people would do it, right? I could say the same thing and everybody would just stay home, but I, I don't know. But there's just something about that grace. I'm a Bible teacher and preacher, but he was an evangelist. I remember sitting there watching him minister with that unique gift that God had given him, so appreciative that he had that, realizing I don't. (laughs) And so we can appreciate the gifts of others and be secure in the knowledge that just as God has graced and uniquely gifted one person to do one thing, He's called and gifted us to do something else, right? So we can be secure in our calling, but at the same time it helps us to stay grounded, to know that, you know what? I can't do it all. I don't even want to try to do it all. I need help. I need God's help. I'm dependent like... Aaron was saying, I'm dependent upon the shepherd, but I'm also dependent on my brothers and sisters. Because without them, I'm limited. There's only so much I can do. There's only so much you can do. But if we put it all together, we've got a functioning body that can accomplish the purposes of God in the earth. So there's always going to be expectations of what people think you should do or even what you think you should do. But I want to encourage you, set those expectations aside. And even if you feel like I'm going to disappoint mom and dad, (laughs) if you stay true to the call of God, there'll be plenty to be thankful for and to see the fruit of that. Uh, as you live that out and walk that out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the life of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that he filled his role so well, that he bore our sins on the cross, giving us the hope of eternal life. We thank you that he did what we could not do. 
He made the sacrifice we could not make. He died the death we couldn't have died. We, we could have died, but it would not have paid the sins of the world. But we thank you, Lord God, that Jesus did. He recognized his call. He recognized his moment. And he fulfilled the expectations that you had for him. And today we're all thankful that he served by putting down his own personal interest in favor of the interest of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, today he's exalted as the Lord of glory for it. We give you thanks and praise for it. Father, may we likewise have that same spirit that Jesus had who humbled himself and served and was willing to seek a towel rather than a platform. And may we do the same thing. May we have that servant heart where we're willing to wash the disciples' feet, as it were, and take a place of service that you may exalt us in your own way, in your own time. We give you thanks and praise for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.